0: The American Dream. Fact or fiction? For those who came to the U.S. undocumented as children, the future can seem uncertain. I'm J.R. Jameson.
1: And I'm Kelsey Timmerman. Today on The Facing Project, we'll discuss dreaming in America.
0: The American Dream is a story that all of us want to believe is real and, like, we're all living it if we make it one step further than our parents. And in some ways that's true, but in other ways it's not. When I think about the American Dream, I think about the person who I've met who
1: sacrificed the most for it. And that was Emil Carr, who I met in Honduras when I followed my t-shirt to the factory that, where it was made, and I met him outside of that factory And then years later, I met up with him, and I had learned that he had been on this amazing journey to come to the United States. And it took him three months, and he escaped bandits and police and ran on top of trains. And eventually, you know, he made it over here, and he supports his family back in Honduras more than he could if he were actually with them. And he sacrificed so much in pursuit of that dream. And I get to share his stories a lot when I travel around and, and talk to college students. And I asked Emil Kar last year if there was some message he wanted to deliver to college students. And, and here's what he had to say. So set this up. Think about the kind of the American dream. And here's what Emil had to, had to tell me to tell them. Do you have a dream? Can you imagine your path as I did when I left Honduras? I went out to fight to give a better life to all my family my brothers my mother my grandparents i am still fighting always with a lot of enthusiasm to get ahead because life is about goals no matter how difficult it is we have to overcome the obstacles and mine is not the exception wow so he's been here for over a decade and i think in many ways he believes in the american dream more than i do yeah i mean the past decade, it's kind of hard to believe the social mobility uh, that you're going to have a better life than your parents. And, um, you know, I do think he believes it more than I do. And he certainly
0: sacrificed a lot more to pursue it than I have. Yeah. I didn't even think about dreamers until I met Tomas, a college student at an event in Indianapolis I was at. And when he told me he was undocumented, and this was my own ignorance at the time, you know, this was six, seven years ago, my first thought was, wait, how are you in college if you're undocumented? And he seemed so much like any boy that I grew up with in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, he had the an American accent. He had this hair that swooped down that he'd flip over as he talked and He was just, in my mind, an American. And so I was really, you know, wrestling in my mind around, how is he undocumented? What does that mean? And so we had a conversation around it, and he was studying accounting, and he couldn't wait to graduate and start this life, but told me that he had this real fear, and other undocumented students do as well in high school, talking to their counselors about the future, because they worry that their family's gonna get found out or one thing's gonna happen and everything comes tumbling down. And he too believes so strongly in this American dream and all I could think the whole time was how unattainable it might be for him. And that really broke my heart. Yeah, it's really challenging to see the people who, who are less likely to
1: reach the American dream, but believe in it so much.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: Today's story comes to us from Oregon and was a part of a national project on immigration that we led in 2013, which was one year after the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program,
0: better known as DACA. The storyteller Daniel tells us about his journey to the U.S. as a child and the dreams he has as he looks toward an optimistic but uncertain future. It is performed by Edgar de Santiago. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Janet Arias Martinez,
1: the Director of Community Engagement for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute in Washington, D.C.,
2: in America I Trust, Daniel's Story, from the Facing Immigration Project, performed by Edgar de Santiago. I remember the day I left Veracruz. It still haunts me. I cleaned all of my toys, making sure everything looked perfect. I wanted things to be ready to play and share with my friends when I got back. My town depended on a sugarcane factory... But after NAFTA, people slowly started to be laid off. At the same time, the drug cartel violence was just starting to pick up. In 2004, my parents did not see a future for my family in Mexico. NAFTA, that is a lot to
1: unpack. Oh boy. It's the North American Free Trade Agreement, which you probably know, which most of us probably know. Well, yeah, but what does it do exactly? It allows for free trade in North America? Does that work? and so it's complex um so my first two books were about international trade of clothing and food and honestly my palms still get sweaty when someone asks me a question about nafta at its simplest nafta allows businesses in mexico or canada to be treated as if they were a business in the united states so theoretically they have unrestricted access to the u.s market and u.s businesses have unrestricted access to mexican and canadian markets But really, NAFTA is way more complex than that. In fact, it's 2,000 pages long. I mean, that's like war and peace territory. Mm -hmm. And it has 619 pages of footnotes. Wow. Geez. Yeah. So NAFTA is much more than the free flow of goods across North America. And not all goods are treated equally. For instance, and most relevant to Daniel's story, sugar the American sugar industry carved out a decade and a half of protectionism under NAFTA, which restricted the import of Mexican sugar into the U.S. That is likely why Daniel blamed NAFTA for the job losses in his hometown. So the community was bleeding jobs from NAFTA, and then there was the drug-related violence, which started to escalate in 2004. Since then, there has been an epidemic of disappearances. More than 28,000 people across Mexico have gone missing— and more than 120,000 people have been killed. Wow. It's also worth mentioning here where those drugs are going. Like, the demand is from us in the United States. So families like Daniel's fled violence and sought security and opportunity in the United States, the place where the sugar industry was protected and which had an insatiable appetite for illegal drugs, making it the Mexican drug cartel's number one customer.
0: Wow. Wow. And also think about having to leave behind your home and everything you ever knew as a child and not totally understanding that you wouldn't get to go back. I mean, I can't imagine that. Daniel was nine when his family left Mexico for the United States. I don't know about you, Kelsey, but when I was nine, I wouldn't have grasped the concept that leaving would mean never seeing my friends again, never seeing my extended family, that I'd probably never even see my birthplace again. It probably maybe would seem like a vacation at first. You know, you're a kid. You get excited about like, oh, we're going to this new place. But I'm sure at some point that would have had an ending. So I imagine there was some excitement, but I can't imagine leaving behind your childhood and the place that you always knew would be a tough concept, I think, for
2: any nine-year-old to understand. We loaded into a truck. I looked back at my grandparents as we drove away. I waved as their faces faded. I dreamed about the stories I would share with them about a new place called America. My mother and I walked for miles in the desert. She carried me and sometimes I'd fall asleep. I could see her fear. She would tell me, we are almost there, but all I saw was sand. That's all Daniel has to say about the journey walking through the desert.
1: Maybe he was too young to remember it or has blocked it out. Maybe that's for the best. Since the 80s, hundreds of thousands of migrants have been caught crossing the border each year, with a peak of 1 million in 2006. It's a crossing that some don't survive and a journey that people in your own community have likely taken. In one county alone in Arizona, 2,816 skeletal remains and bodies have been found since 2000. People with names, families, and friends who are searching for a better life for themselves and their families, die of dehydration and hypothermia. Some of them are never found or identified. Some making the journey carry phone numbers of their family members in their shoes so they can be identified if they don't make it. Others don't for fear if they are captured by bandits, they could be held for
2: ransom. After crossing the border, we moved to Oregon where we've lived since. Not
0: only would life be different in another country, but can we talk about climate? Daniel's hometown of Veracruz is on the Gulf of Mexico where the average January temperature is 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Oregon in January is 45 degrees with snow. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking Oregon. It has Mount Hood. It as the backdrop for Stand By Me, the Goonies. It's given us Courtney Love, Gus Van Zandt, and Sam Adams, the mayor,
2: not the beer maker.
0: But Veracruz to Oregon is quite the
2: change. My parents came here to find the American dream. They sacrificed a lot and left their families behind. But life is difficult here without proper documentation. In middle school, my history teacher talked about the American Revolution and the Civil Rights Movement. I was interested in all of the sacrifices the American people faced and overcame. I decided I wanted to go to a military school and work for the CIA. After three years, I learned English. I went from ESL classes to honor classes to advanced courses. I wanted to serve in my community as a police cadet, but my dad did not want me to because he was afraid we would get deported. So back in middle school,
1: he was sitting in class and his history teacher was talking about the American Revolution, World War II, the Great Depression, the Civil Rights Movement. And he was inspired by all the sacrifices the American
0: people faced and overcame. So one day he invited a police officer to his house and told him he was undocumented, but wanted to be a part of his program. They let him in. That was his first step into serving his community. He served in the JROTC as a firefighter, as a city youth counselor, on public safety boards. Daniel was
2: a top student in his class, engaged in his community, played sports. It was perfect until my junior year. That's when everyone applied for scholarships and got their driver's license, but I couldn't. To make things worse, my grandpa passed away. I remember my mom crying because she had to choose between her dad's funeral, which meant never coming back to America, or staying with us.
0: What a tough decision. If Daniel's mom would have gone back for the funeral, she wouldn't have been able to reenter the U.S. unless she risked the journey again, coming here undocumented. Individuals found to be undocumented can't apply for legal entry for 5 to 20 years, depending on why the deportation occurred, and typically the process is on the longer end, a risk that is too high for some to take.
2: I gave a speech at graduation, but even then, I didn't know what was going to become of me. People were expecting a lot from me, but because of my status, I started working in the fields. It was hard to see workers not treated right. It was hard to hear about the unattainable dreams they had. To be doctors, attorneys, police officers, own a restaurant. I couldn't stand how bad the workers were treated, so I quit. High school graduation is
0: supposed to be this big day for moving on to the next chapter of your life, but imagine having bittersweet feelings of thinking you've done everything and even more to excel. Your future was uncertain, and that job that was waiting out there for you was certainly not the dream you had, but you knew that you had no other options. In a job as a field worker,
1: without proper documentation, you can easily be exploited by an employer. I'm not saying they all are, but if a worker is underpaid or overworked or mistreated, they aren't about to go to the authorities. They have no real course of action other than finding somewhere else to work. And they want to work because they need to support their families back home. In 2016, migrants sent $69 billion back home from the United States. Today, more than half of farm workers in the U.S. are believed to be undocumented migrants. It's not an overstatement to say that American agriculture depends on undocumented and falsely documented workers. If enforcement is ramped up, production of fruits and vegetables is
2: expected to plummet 30 to 61 percent. I enrolled in a community college. After I got approved for DACA, I started lobbying at the Capitol to make sure we could get in-state tuition and a driver's license. I fought because my parents and many people's futures depended on legislators changing the law.
1: DACA is short for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It is an American immigration policy that was put into place by the Obama administration, signed into law by an executive order on June 5, 2012. It works like this. If an individual was brought to the U.S. undocumented by their parents or guardians prior to their 16th birthday and they had lived in the U.S. since 2007 and they were younger than 31 by June 15, 2012, they were eligible for the program. It does not necessarily provide a pathway to citizenship, but what it does do is allow two-year renewable timeframes where those individuals can gain work permits, pay taxes, and be exempt from deportation unless they are known to commit a felony. This group of individuals is known
2: as dreamers. JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That is what dreamers are doing. I hope to earn my citizenship so I can serve our country. Yet I still live in fear. I fear I will not be able to see my grandma before she passes away. I fear that my parents could get deported at any time.
0: And this is where it gets complicated for DACA recipients, like Daniel. From 2014 to 2016, DACA recipients were allowed to enlist in the military because of the military accession's Vital to National Interest Program. This was started under the George H.W. Bush administration. It allowed more pathways to citizenship for those who had legally immigrated, but had yet to earn their status as a citizen. In 2014, the Obama administration opened up the program to DREAMers. Under the Trump administration, that's all changed. Now a U.S. citizen must undergo a security clearance before they go off to boot camp, and that clearance can take up to a year. So for immigrants, earning citizenship from military service can take longer than going through the process as a civilian. And for DACA recipients, they are no longer eligible for military recruitment. And to become a police officer— or to be eligible for any federal-level position like the DEA or FBI, legal U.S. status must be obtained, and DACA doesn't count.
2: I hope people hear my story. I hope they help open a path for me to become a United States citizen. I am here because I believe in the American dream. I am here, and I am American.
0: Daniel lives in Oregon where he studied economics and finance. As of the fall of 2019, United States Customs and Immigration Services estimates there are around 700,000 active DACA recipients residing in the United States. In 2017, President Trump announced he planned to phase out the DACA program as a whole and gave Congress six months to pass the DREAM Act or some type of legislative protection for DREAMers. That did not happen, and the six-month timeframe ran out on March 5, 2018. Several courts put ending DACA on hold, but the summer of 2018, a district court ruled that DACA is unconstitutional. A halt was put in place, but the program is not allowed to accept new recipients, and the current DACA holders, like Daniel, as of the summer of 2019, are still left in limbo. We want to welcome to the show Janet Arias Martinez, who serves as the Director of Community Engagement for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization based in DC that provides leadership development programs and educational services to students and young emerging Latino leaders. Thank you for joining us, Janet.
3: Thank you both for having me.
1: Hey Janet, this is Kelsey. And one of the remarkable things about Daniel and his story was how engaged he was in his community and how he sought out leadership opportunities and And the uh, research shows that nine out of 10 DACA recipients are from Latin American countries. So how do you, how does your organization help students like Daniel who are navigating those leadership opportunities and life after high school and college?
3: No, thank you, Kelsey. Um, Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, CHCI, we've been around um, now 42 years. um, And the organization is focused primarily on providing leadership development opportunities to Latinos across the board, um, both documented and undocumented, um, basically any any Latinos who are um, living here in the, you know, the United States. Um, some of our our work includes recruiting DACA recipients. We actually um, uh, the organization made it a point to um, revise our application guidelines when DACA came out to to make sure that we um, provide opportunities for those students. And um, Daniel's story is is. Um, it's very common. It's more, more common than one would think. Um, and we try to help them not only navigate the opportunities within CHCI's programming, which includes providing internship and fellowship um, placements and, and work experience, everything within sort of the, the, the DC sphere, um, really using um, Washington and um, you know sort of the public policy space as a living laboratory for exploring their leadership development. We, we definitely try to make sure that we create paths for access to those opportunities we really try to leverage our chci alumni network um the, again it's just the, the chci's reason for being really um from the start when we were founded in 1978 it was just to increase latino representation and to create those pathways for for access to, to power access to opportunity
1: uh, for me a quote comes to mind with this story it's from author wes moore it's um potential is universal and opportunity is not Is that something that can be, like, as you do your work, is that something that's frustrating? Like, you can see so much potential in someone, but there are these barriers that uh, they can't really control that can keep them from reaching their potential? Or do you feel like that you're able to help them over or navigate those barriers where they are able to reach their full potential?
3: No, I I really appreciate the sentiment in that quote, because that really encapsulates the the, the, the biggest issue that we have, right? That CHCI exists to increase Latino representation and exists to make sure that um, Latinos across the country have the opportunity to be get a seat at the decision-making table, so to speak. And when you talk about, um, you know, folks who are DACA recipients, right? We're, we're dealing with, you know, a legal definition of whether or not, um, you know, our, our country believes that someone belongs here in this community, um, the Latino community in general has faced issues where potential doesn't match the opportunity that's available to them. Mm-hmm. So when you add, the, you know, when you figure into the um, into the equation, the fact that not only do you are you already talking about underrepresentation because of, um, you know, because of a, a cultural or ethnic background, because, you know, and this may be a newsflash to some folks, but being a Latino, that's not a race. Mm-hmm. You know the, the Latino community is multiracial, multiethnic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the intersectionality its is real, right? So when you um, take into account all of all of those challenges that are already faced by Latinos across the country, we're, that's the tide we're working against. Um, I think that our our programs are unique in the fact that we are fully funded. Um, you know, we we fully fund the experience for anybody who gets accepted to our programs. You know, we try to remove as many barriers as possible. So mm-hmm. everything from covering health insurance covering uh, you know transportation stipends so they can commute to work um, our interns get free housing we you know there's so many different things that we we try to address and yet the fact that we have our DACA recipients as a part of our cohort and they they have to deal with some challenges in even um, even experiencing the program at the, in the same way as a person who is documented um, does um so the fact that we facilitate placements with with um, You know, congressional offices and in some cases, federal agencies, depending on the interest of the intern or the fellow, um, we will facilitate those placements and try to get them as close as they can to to getting that, that job. But at the end of the day, if the federal government won't accept anybody with DACA status as an employee, then that's another barrier that we can't overcome. So that's, you know, we're we're a nonprofit organization and we don't, we don't lobby, we don't advocate necessarily, but what we can do is connect and convene Mm -hmm. folks to keep talking about these issues.
0: Yeah. I'm curious to know under the current administration, tension has increased in regard to how out someone with DACA status can be or wants to be. How has that shifted outreach to students who are dreamers?
3: So the, the the current administration and let's take it even a, a step further to say just the general sentiment in our country about the acceptance of, of, of DACA recipients within our community. That 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 increased tension, that increased sense of um, you know lack of security, lack of safety. Absolutely, that impacts um, whether or not um, DACA students want to apply to our programs. I think that it's it's still. Um, it's still a mixed bag in the sense that we, we recruit to any and all Latinos. We, we, we don't, we don't discriminate. We, um, we, we want to try to make our programs as accessible as possible. Um, and of course we, we make sure to reach out to partner organizations in the community that specifically serve dreamers, um, academic institutions that have offices for, um, uh, undocumented students. We really try to, um, make sure that folks know about the opportunities. And of course we have a competitive application process, so they have to go through the same application as everyone else. But, um, in terms of just the, I I guess I want to phrase it as our outreach hasn't necessarily changed. We're not making any, um, specific efforts or campaigns to try to get more dreamers in, but we do try to, um, counsel those those dreamers that we're able to reach and, you know, in, in terms of how they can navigate the system so that they can um, take advantage of the experience. Um, but it's been a little more challenging because, you know, to your point earlier, tension has increased so some folks don't feel as safe in, in, mm-hmm. um, in kind of sharing, okay, I'm undocumented or maybe I'm not, but my mother is. Our, our program's mm-hmm. team and just, you know, CHCI's um, staff in general does a really good job of trying to connect with the individual's we're interested in pursuing our programs from the application process, from even the recruitment process and just kind of talking through, okay, well, you know, what are you thinking about? Um, What are, what are some of your goals? What are some of those, those fears? And let's try to put you in contact with other um, students who maybe have gone through this, the situation to try to to figure out what's what. Uh, I think that our, our alumni association, I I go back to that network because yes, our, our leadership programs and sort of the, a community that we create around students like Daniel when they're here in, in Washington and when they're um, actively um, engaged in our programs. That those experiences are powerful and they're transformational. But I think it's the network and the um, just the connections that they make that they take with them wherever they go. Mm-hmm. That in in a lot of cases I've heard um, stories from folks who have completed our programs that say, I you know, I, yes, the 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 internship program was awesome, but can I tell you about the you know the advocacy I was able to do in California or in Arkansas because I had connections thanks to the CHCI community.
0: Yeah. And we get that sense of empowerment from Daniel's story that he wanted to step forward and make a difference for for other folks who had similar status as him. But we don't really learn the outcome of what happens to Daniel, I mean, we, we hear at the end that uh, he's in community college, but we're not really sure where it goes after that. Could you share a story of a DACA student like Daniel who has gone on to become a leader in their community?
3: And so actually, uh, there, there's a couple of stories that come to mind. One of our um, Dreamer students, one of our Dreamer fellows, I believe she did the fellowship. When I'm thinking of is um, from about three years ago. She's now leading the um, the charge in terms of Policy research and advocacy around immigration for one of the biggest progressive think tanks in Washington. Um, There's 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 so many of those stories. Um, I I know of another undocumented student, a a DACA recipient, who's um, based in Chicago. He was welcomed into this this, the CHCI community, and um, after completing his internship, he went back to Chicago and started working for local government. um, And and he's continuing to work on his education to pursue his dream of, of going into medicine there's, there's so, so many of those stories. And I think that the common thread really is that they were able to not only find a community that welcomes them, that celebrates their, their wholeness, their, you know, that, that validates that, yes, you belong here. You, you, you have a place in, in the American society that, that we've created together. And not only that, but they also found that support system so that when they deal with the issues of Ugh, because of my DACA status, I'm not able to get X or Y job, or I'm not able to pursue um, you know, this educational opportunity because of this technicality. They're, they're able to find those, um, those folks who say, well, I got you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Janet Ardias-Martinez from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute in Washington, D.C., thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for joining us.
3: JR, Kelsey, thank you so much for this invitation. It was really an amazing opportunity, and um, I'm I'm grateful that you all are exploring issues like that of our DACA students in the Latino community.
0: Thanks, Janet. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute
1: stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project.
0: The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson, and until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others.